John Harrison, horologist, carpenter, the man who solved the longitude problem. Hello, this is Greg Perry for the Historic Preservationist. I was first introduced to John Harrison in the late 90s through the movie Longitude. This led me to consuming all books Harrison and eventually to the masterwork by Lieutenant Commander Rupert T. Gould, the definitive book on marine chronometers a work so profound and thoroughly researched that it has no equal today. My hunger to get to know Harrison on a personal level led me to three trips to the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, England. Two times observing the dismantling of Harrison's timekeepers and examining Neville masculine silk jumpsuit and one of Harrison's tall case wood movements, a regulating clock. John Harrison, John Harrison, 1693 to 1776, was perhaps history's most famous watch and clockmaker. His marine timekeepers and pendulum clocks solved the greatest scientific problem of the age, how to find longitude at sea. And it is in these extraordinary machines that his real achievement lies. The story of how the timekeepers were made is also a great tale of triumph over adversity. In spite of much prejudice from his peers and many practical and technical difficulties, Harrison's work proved to be one of the major technological improvements of the 18th century. Indeed, his invention, a truly accurate portable timekeeper, was not just for the practical marine chronometer, but also the foundation of all subsequent precision watches ever made in the history of horology. Being wholly self-taught and working almost entirely alone, his scientific and horological thinking was deeply unconventional. And this is one of the most interesting and challenging aspects of studying his mechanisms and writings. Harrison was also a pioneer in his field. It could be said that his was the first government-sponsored research and development project. So, by definition, many of these mechanisms and concepts are quite unique. Childhood Education Born of March 24, 1693, at Folby, near Wakefield in Yorkshire, John Harrison was the oldest son of Henry Harrison, a housewright and carpenter. John was only four when the family moved to the remote village of Barrow in neighboring Lincolnshire on the south bank of the mighty Humber River, just south of the large and rapidly expanding town of Hall. There, there the Harrisons established themselves as notable members of the community, with John's father soon talking up the role of parish clerk. Little is known of John's early education, but it is likely to have been acquired at home along with woodworking skills taught to him by his father. Harrison was, nevertheless, a precocious youth. At one point, Harrison, as boy, copied out the whole book of lectures on mechanics by Nicholas Saunderson. As a teen, John also learned the art of land surveying, making his own plane table and compass the portable instrument used in the field by surveyors at the period for making maps. Harrison became an accomplished 
bass viola player and was the choir master at the Barrow Parish Church. In later life, he published a radically different method for tuning the musical scale. He even understood that the high frequency of oscillations of musical instruments have implications for timekeeping design. Introduction to Clockwork John Harrison was a pioneer in the field of precision clockmaking, but he was by no means the first to make mechanical clocks. By the time Harrison was designing his first timepiece, mechanical clocks had been around for nearly 400 years. And there is evidence that clockwork was made in the late 16th century in Europe. The first examples appear to have been large mechanisms made in monasteries as a means of automatically sounding bells for prayer. The term clock derives from the Latin word for bell, clocka. Made without dials, they sounded the time rather than ever showing it. By the beginning of the 14th century, Clocks with dials to show the time began to appear in communities across Central Europe as a convenient alternative to the sundial. These were especially useful in cloudy weather, but particularly for good for timekeeping during the night. These clocks were crude. Construction was of iron, wood, and powered by weight, and they were very poor timekeepers. At the end of the day, they may be out as much as a half hour a day. During the first 350 years that clockwork survived, a sundial was far more trustworthy than the clock. Generally, in any given community, there was only one clock, the town clock. Whether the time was right or wrong, the entire community went by it. By the late 14th century, smaller versions of these large tower clocks appeared, now made for domestic use, some had alarms, only running overnight, and some for timekeeping and striking all day. Then, around 1450, there appeared the concept of a coiled spring instead of a weight hanging on a cord or chain for powering a clock. For the first time, clocks did not need to be fixed on a wall. They could be carried around. Around 1500, during the early Renaissance, Cities in southern Germany had established themselves as world-renowned centers for fine metalwork. And it was here that clockwork was made so small that it could be carried on the person. And as such, watch, watches have arrived and arrived into the world. Although very expensive to produce, these fine articles of jewelry still kept time no better than before. They were chiefly purchased by the wealthy as mere tokens of posterity and status, and particularly as symbols of learning and temperance. This began to change as Europe began an increasingly rational, free-thinking view of science and the theoretical and practical experiments that now took place, which would completely revolutionize horological technology. The Age of Enlightenment. The Golden Age of Science Throughout the second half of the 17th century, England, too, enjoyed a scientific renaissance. Under King Charles II's patronage, the Royal Society was founded in London in 1660, and with this funding, the Royal Observatory was built in Greenwich in 1675. 
works of scientists and mathematicians such as Robert Hooke, Robert Boyle, and Isaac Newton reflected a period of intense scientific advancement across Northern Europe. Inspired by the celebrated Italian astronomer Galileo, his brilliant realization that the swinging of a pendulum would make a highly accurate controller as a timekeeper for clocks and watches. The great Dutch scientist Christian Huygens designed the first practical pendulum clock in 1656. Hence, the timekeeping of earlier clocks had been in error by about 20 to 30 minutes a day. The new pendulum-controlled clocks were capable of a variation of less than a minute a day. The introduction of the pendulum to clockwork was the greatest improvement in the history of timekeeping. The reason that the pendulum is such a good timekeeper is that, unlike the controllers of earlier clocks, the folio or simple balance wheel, the pendulum has a natural restoring force of gravity that ensures that it swings at a very regular rate. Clockmakers in Holland and France began producing these technological wonders, but it was the famed infamous London clockmakers, most notably Hascarius Frontamil, who had sent his son John to Holland to learn of Huygens' invention, who exploited the new design to its maximum potential. By the end of the 17th century, London was universally recognized as the world's most important center for the manufacturing of clocks and watches. Virtually all of the most important design improvements which shaped the modern mechanical clock were incorporated by English clocks by 1700. The only real challenge remained to be met by improving clockwork, and it is no wonder that the world looked to England for the solution. The problem of longitude. From the end of the 15th century, merchants, explorers, and adventurers took to the open seas in unprecedented numbers. These journeys were hazardous, not only because of the inherent dangers of the sea, but also because of the outright sight of land. Sailors had no accurate means of knowing their exact positioning. One's position on earth is designed and defined by two coordinates, latitude, which is one's distance north or south of the equator, and longitude, one's distance east and west of an agreed place, such as one's home port. In other words, how far around the world one is from home. Latitude was easy to find with a simple calculation by observation of the sun at midday or in the northern hemisphere by the pole star at night. Longitude, however, had always been a severe problem. Because the earth rotates on its axis, the sun appears to traverse the sky from east to west. One complete revolution of earth takes one day, 24 hours, and we are familiar with the fact that the earth is divided into 24 time zones. In the same way, the circle of the globe can be divided into 360 degrees of longitude. So, as the 24 hours of time is the same thing as a 360 degree of longitude, each of the 24 hours is equivalent to 15 degrees of longitude. Represented by the lines known as meridians, running from pole to pole, dividing the earth into equal segments, 
Longitude is thus the same thing as time difference between places. Therefore, to find your latitude at sea, you need to know at that moment what time it is at some other location on Earth, usually your home port. Then, by noting your local time, which is relatively easy to do using the star or sun, the difference between the two times provides you with the longitude from home. The real problem was how to discover what time it was at your port. The obvious answer would be to take a portable clock with you that was set to home time before you left. Such a clock must never be allowed to stop and would have to be accurate and unaffected by the violent movements of the ship and extreme temperature changes. In 1700, almost no one believed that such a clock could be created. Having designed a highly successful and practical pendulum clock, Christian Huygens made considerable efforts in the 17th century to develop a seagoing clock as did his great English contemporary counterpart, Robert Hooke, and a number of other hopefuls. Any marine clock design which relies on gravity for its timekeeping is bound to fail owing to the wildly varying forces on board a moving ship. And pendulum clocks could not function reliably under these conditions. Even the great scientist Sir Isaac Newton considered the mechanical clock solution most unlikely to succeed. Celestial clocks. One alternative to the impossible clock was to use the movement of the moon in the sky as a kind of clock to promote home time. Since its passion, passage past the stars was very predictable, one could use the moon like the clock's hand with the stars as the clock's dial. By consulting tables listing the position of the moon at different home times, one could calculate one's longitude when at sea. Unfortunately, through the system called the lunar-based method, was complex and time-consuming. It could take four months to find your longitude this way. Besides which, for 20% of the month, the moon is not easily seen. Nevertheless, most people believed that the lunar-based method would be the answer to the longitude problem. The Royal Observatory was founded at Greenwich in 1665 for the express navigational purpose of making charts of the skies and to read the position of the moon throughout the year. So as to find so much desired longitude of places for perfecting the art of navigation. The Longitude Prize Meanwhile, seafaring nations continued to sail the oceans in spite of the longitude problem, and many lives and huge quantities of cargo were being lost every year. As early as 1657, the Spanish crown had offered monetary reward for a solution to the seemingly intractable problem, and in that following century, Additional prizes were offered by the governments of Portugal, Venice, and Holland. The King of France himself had tentatively agreed to reward one particular inventor who proposed a solution, but it was eventually deemed to be an unsatisfactory 
and the whole question of determining the longitude of sea was considered an impossible task. The year 1707 witnessed the calamitous loss of the British flagship Association, with three other warships wrecked on the Isles of Scilly, just off the southwest coast of England. The Admiral of the Fleet, the splendidly named Sir Cloudsley Shovel, lost his life in addition, along with nearly 2,000 of his men, a disaster in its day as huge as the loss of the Titanic in 1912. Although this terrible accident had been particularly caused by the inability to determine longitude, the fleet were much further north than they had estimated. It served as a dramatic and awful reminder of the need for safer navigation at sea, and undoubtedly particularly inspired the development which follows. In July of 1713, noted mathematician William Whiston and Humphrey Ditton published a letter in the London-based journal, The Guardian, stating they had a solution of the longitude problem and would disclose it if a reward was granted, subject to the inspection and approval of Sir Isaac Newton. Pressure was now mounting from influential merchants, ship captains, and commanders alike. Here a solution can be found in the following year the government responded by passing an Act of Parliament offering large prizes for the solution to the longitude problem. £10,000 was an offer for the solution which could determine the longitude within one degree and £15,000 for the solution within two-thirds of a degree. The great prize was £20,000 the equivalent to $2 million today. In addition, to win this prize, the solution, any method could be considered as long as, as it was practicable, had to provide longitude to within a half degree. To test this method, it would be tried on a ship sailing over the ocean from Great Britain to any port in the West Indies. As those commissioners, or the major part of them, shall choose without losing their longitude before the limits before mentioned. The final somewhat vague requirement was that the method should be proved to be practicable and useful at sea. The impossible question. One unfortunate result of the act was that the offer of such a large sum of money attracted the attention of all manner of cracks, cranks, and charlatans. The official body set up to judge the submissions and administer the rewards, titled the Board of Longitude and made up of senior politicians, high-ranking naval personnel, and Oxbridge professors, was flooded with weird and wonderful suggestions. Whiston and Ditton's proposal must have seemed perfectly sane by comparison. The whole longitude question was soon so famous for its difficulty that, like squaring the circle and inventing a perpetual motion machine, it became a kind of catchphrase for the pursuit of fools and lunatics. Many simply believed the problem could not be solved, and over the years, 
commentators often descended to ridicule and with heavy sarcasm when referring to the subject. Longitude lunatics. The most famous example was the publication by an anonymous author in 1688, decades before the Act of Parliament, of a proposal using the power of sympathy. An anonymous author of the spoof Longitude Proposal suggested that every ship be provided with a dog suitably wounded and at appropriate times back at home, a bandage or knife associated with that wound be plunged into the powder of sympathy, causing the dog to jump and providing a kind of canine time signal across many miles. It was, of course, quite the joke, but to many, the idea that a clock might succeed where dogs have failed was equally ridiculous. The Marine Timekeepers In spite of the evidence of Christian Huygens' failed experiments with a marine timekeeper, there were still a few brave attempts to succeed with mechanical clock design especially once the new initiative of the British Prize was announced. Until his death in 1727, Sir Isaac Newton was asked to advise on submissions to the Board of Longitude, sent to him via the Admiralty. There is evidence that a number of applications were made, and small sums of money were provided for experiments in the early years, long before the Board of Longitude itself was formally met. In its correspondence, Newton refers once to a clock designed by the Quaker. It is not known for certain who it is, but is possibly a reference to the well-known Quaker clockmaker Daniel Quare, who is believed to have experimented with marine clock designs. Determined efforts were made also by Henry Sully, an English clockmaker who worked for most of his life in France. An admirer and follower of Huygens' work, Sully made several attempts during the early 1720s to develop a workable mechanical design producing and testing three marine clocks. Sadly, all failed. It is remarkable, then, that not only was a solution to the longitude problem found, but that it should prove to be a timekeeper after all. Moreover, what makes the story even more extraordinary is the nature of the man who made these technological breakthroughs. Harrison, clockmaker and scientist. John Harrison, a joiner from Lincolnshire of a relatively humble background and with little to no formal education, took on the scientific and academic establishment of the day and by sheer determination coupled with an extraordinarily innate technical insight, finally succeeded in winning the Longitude Prize and worldwide acclaim. The Beginning of Harrison's Clockmaking Where Harrison's interest in clockmaking came from, we simply do not know. We do know in 1713, at the age of 20, he had completed a long case clock which, while relatively ordinary in external appearance as a mechanical made almost entirely of wood, although this choice of material may seem logical enough for one trained as a joiner, 
making small clock mechanisms out of wood was absolutely unheard of in England. There were a few continental precedents emanating from southern Germany, and one or two characteristics of Harrison's early work suggest the influence of continental clockwork. So it is possible he came across examples of these ports in Hall. Three of Harrison's early wooden clocks have survived. The first, with the movement signed and dated 1713, is presented in the Worshipful Company of Clockmakers collection in the Guild Hall in central London. The second, similarly designed and dated 1750, is now in the National Science Museum in London. The third, dated 1770, is at Nostel Priory, England. Though acquired in the early 20th century and not directly as a result of Harrison's origins there. The early clocks. Simply constructed in oak, these clocks have all the conventional anchor escapement and count wheel system of striking. Standard for long case clocks in that time. The wheels and pinions are also made of wood. The wheels of oak and the pinions of boxwood. Even in these early clocks, Harrison's ingenuity is seen. In contrasting his wheels, he used the millwright's technique of mortising segments of three or four teeth into the rim. This enabled him to cut the segments along the grain of the wood, which, by inserting them radically into the wheel, made the teeth considerably stronger. Having said this, in other respects, the other clocks are basically wooden versions of contemporary metal clock design and with steel pivots and brass bushes in a wooden frame. These movements still require oiling in the usual way. Today, none of these clocks has their original case, but a section of the trunk door of the 1717 clock case does exist in the Clockmakers Company collection. It provides an interesting insight into Harrison's education. Pasted to the piece of the door is a manuscript giving times of sunrise and sunset throughout the year and an equation of time table. This table provides data for each day of the year, showing the difference between the mean time, which is clock time, and the solar time, which is taken by the sundial, which varies throughout the year. An equation table thus enables one to set clocks correctly using a sundial. The table is in Harrison's own hand and suggests that he may have had sufficient astronomical knowledge to determine the data himself. In 1718, John had married, but tragically his wife Elizabeth died just eight years later. Within six months, Harrison had married again to another Elizabeth. During the latter part of his early career as a clockmaker, John had his younger brother James to help him, and it seems the two developed an interest in technical aspects of clocks and watches. The Brokesby Park Clock The Harrison brothers' first major clock-making project and an important early commission for them was a revolutionary turret clock made in the 1770s for the stables at Brokesbury Park 
the seat of the Pelham family. The clock, which also was constructed almost entirely of oak, was revolutionary because it needed no lubrication. Even modern clock oils tend to thicken with age, to creep away from where they're intended, and they turn acidic and evaporate. Mostly derived from animal fats, 18th century clock oils were particularly poor and tended to be one of the major causes to a clock's failing to work. With no formal education, John Harrison was always a radical thinker. Instead of worrying about ways to improve the oil, he produced a clock that did not need it. The first of its kind and one of only a few ever to be made in the history of the world. Harrison was particularly adept in selecting only the best materials for the application, and again employed boxwood, this time for the bearings of the clock, which, in combination with brass pivots, provided a very effective oil-free bearing surface. Later, he discovered that the dense, greasy, tropical hardwood, particularly from Brazil, lignum vitae, again in combination with brass, would perform even better in this application. The clock originally had an anchor escapement, but Harrison soon approved, improved upon this with a new invention, the grasshopper escapement, which employed no sliding action, actions and therefore did not require oil. The escapement was given this particular name because of its action to its pallets. To avoid sliding actions, which would need lubrication, these pallets made of oak are designed to jump out of the engagement after each impulse, their action being reminiscent of the hind legs of a grasshopper. As well as being exceptionally well-designed, the Broxbeak Park clock is exceptionally beautifully made, revealing Harrison's first-rate skills as a jointer and cabinetmaker. Over 250 years after its construction, the clock is still in Bradbury Park, continuing to run reliably and keep excellent time and is still without the need of lubrication. Precision Pendulum Clocks After much success, Harrison continued to develop more accurate and reliable designs. In the mid-1720s, after his Direction, James Harrison started to work on a set of precision pendulum clocks, smaller, long case versions of the turret clock to see just how far they could push the capabilities of the design for accuracy. On the outside, these clocks look like Harrison's early long case clocks, but in detail, they are very different indeed. Like the turret clock, they run without lubrication, having smaller versions of his grasshopper escapement and using lignum vitae bearings. The wheelwork is still oak, but now the pinions are made out of lignum vitae rollers mounted on brass pins. So the wheel teeth are actually in rolling contact during meshing. Three of these precision long clocks have survived, being dated 16, 1726, 1727, and 1728, 
with the latter on display at the Clockmakers Company Museum in London, England. Harrison's victory over the problem of lubrication by eliminating the problem itself was ingenious, but not typical of his scientific methodology. His approach was to accept the presence of an enemy and negate the effect by compensating for it. Using the more typical method, he eliminated another significant error in these precision pendulum clocks that caused by the effects of temperature change. Temperature compensation. Clocks go slower when the weather gets warmer because the pendulum rod expands and lengthens. The longer pendulums beat more slowly than shorter ones. For a clock to keep time consistently, the pendulum's effective length must not change. The effective length is the distance between the point of suspension and the center of gravity. Harrison solved the problem of temperature change by inventing a pendulum that, instead of a simple rod, has a gridiron made up of alternating series of brass and steel rods. The steel rods downward expansion being counteracted by the upward expansion of the brass rods. In this brilliantly clever design, all the rods are ever expanding. The effective length of the pendulum remains the same as it continues to keep time. As a result, Harrison tells us that these early precision pendulum clocks achieved the astonishing accuracy of a variation of no greater than one second a month, a performance far exceed, exceeding the best London clocks of the day by all of the masters. Moreover, because the clocks had no oil, they maintained their performance for much longer than conventional clocks. Harrison developed two of these clocks in his workshop in tandem. His ingenious scientific method being to use one of the clocks as a control, a regulated control, while he made adjustments and improvements to the other. Then, switching the clocks and using the improved clock as the control while the other was adjusted. Both of these clocks were employed as regulators to test his other clocks. He tells us that, in order to time them precisely, he used the passage of stars across the sky at night. This highly ingenious method was suggested in Sunderland's lectures, Harrison doubtless learning of it from his copy of these. Using this method, Harrison was able to gauge time to a remarkable precision of a twentieth of per second. Marine Timekeepers a simple calculation based on the terms of the Longitude Act tells us that in order to qualify for the main Longitude Prize of 20,000 pounds, a timekeeper should have to keep time with a variation of no greater than 2.8 seconds a day. Before 1750, the only available portable timepieces, watches, were hopelessly quite inaccurate. Even the highly, the highest quality watches of that period lost or gained at least a minute per day. 
The only timepieces capable of the required accuracy were large pendulum clocks fixed rigidly, rigidly to the wall like Harrison's regulators. Therefore, given the options to them, potential designers of marine timekeepers, such as Harrison, saw only one logical course of action to win the longitude prize. They would have to make a portable version of a pendulum clock. As we shall see, however, this progressive and apparently logical approach was not the correct one, but no one realized it at this time. In the following few years, Harrison, therefore, formulated a plan for a large marine timekeeper, and it was recorded that he visited London in 1727 and 1728 to seek support and to make it. Harrison himself tells us that he came south at about this time to seek funding and moral support for the effort. Taking with him drawings, and a written description of his proposal for the timekeeper. Harrison's biographer, Humphrey Quill, suggested that this visit was more likely to have been two or three years later. In 1730, as a manuscript description of his first marine timekeeper, dated that year, has survived and also suggested it. The 1730 manuscript, of which little is known, is now preserved in the Royal Clockmakers Company collection in London, England. However, it is just as likely that Harrison did not come to London in 1727 or 1728 with preliminary sketches and the 1730 manuscript, which is very carefully worded and illustrated. It is a refined version, the result of further development and advance, possibly intended for use on a follow-up visit to London. Whichever year the first visit was, Harrison records that he went initially to Greenwich to seek the advice of the Astronomer Royal. At that time, the Astronomer Royal was Edmund Haley of Comet fame, who received Harrison very kindly. According to Harrison, despairing of ever, completing the lunar tables containing the data required for the lunar distance method. Haley, however, not being in any way horologically qualified, felt unable to judge the soundness of his plans and suggested that Harrison go directly to London to see George Graham. George Graham had been a partner to Thomas Tompion and was at that time the greatest and most highly respected maker of watches, clocks, and scientific instruments. Haley, therefore, warned Harrison to be brief and to the point. It is clear that Harrison was not the best at expressing himself succinctly, and what with making his clocks from wood and being based in the wilds of Lincolnshire, one can understand that someone as busy and important as Graham may have initially been quite prejudiced in his assessment of whom he was dealing with. Harrison, having arrived at 10 a.m., was still discussing timekeeper design with Graham at dinner in Graham's house in front of the fireplace late into the evening. Graham even extended an offer of a loan to support Harrison's work. A great demonstration of confidence could not have been this so imagined. It is interesting to speculate 
that at what point the ice broke in their discussion and with which particular thoughts or methods impressed the great watchmaker. It is known since at least 1750, Graham himself have been, has been trying to design a pendulum with temperature compensation in mind, using brass and steel rods, but he had not been able to work out all the details and to do it properly. In the end, he came up with another system using mercury in a glass jar as the bob of the pendulum. No doubt, when Harrison described how he designed his compensation pendulum, Graham realized this was no ordinary country carpenter. On returning to Barrow, Harrison spent the next five years or so with his brother James, constructing the extraordinary timekeeper as we know it today, H1. After preliminary but rigorous test on a barge in the River Humber, Harrison felt ready to move to what that machine had been tested more formally. H1 was brought to Graham in London and publicly displayed to the scientific community, where it became quite a celebrity, hugely impressing all who inspected and viewed it. It was widely regarded as one of the wonders of the ages of the Age of Enlightenment. Both scientists and socialites besieged Harrison with a request to see his timekeeper. It was also possible that some came to see Harrison, the man, the curiosity from the country, the ingenious clockmaker. In 1735, the Royal Society certified a certificate of H1's great potential, which persuaded the authorities to grant the new timekeeper some form of a trial. Up until his death eight years before, Newton reviewed the viability of all such proposals, but now it fell into the Admiralty's other advisors to recommend to the First Lord of the Admiralty that Harrison and his timekeepers should be giving a semi-official trial on the seas. Therefore, it was that H1 and its maker sailed on board the warship Centurion to Lisbon in May of 1736. Before departing, the ship's captain, George Proctor, wrote that he found Harrison a very sober, very industrious, and very modest man, but he feared that the sea gave him difficulty of measuring time truly and gave him concerns for the honest man which makes me fear his attempt and attempts quite impossible. After a week-long voyage in tempestuous weather, Proctor wrote, from Lisbon that Harrison was seasick with all for many days, but seemed satisfied that the motion of the sick ship was not in the least detrimental to his timekeeping. The ship's log, however, reveals that H1 was not performing as well as one might have expected on this outward voyage, and some of the positions calculated from its readings appeared to be considerably wide of the mark. In Lisbon, H1 was transferred to the Orford and does not appear to have performed much better on the long homeward voyage. Indeed, Harrison used each one to correct a misreading of the ship's longitude and prevented what could have been a very serious accident. All the officers believed that the first land sighted by the ship was the start point near Dartmouth. 
Harrison and H1, however, proved that it was the Lizard, Lizard Point, on the peninsula. This was located nearly 60 miles to the southwest. It was the southernmost point of England and revealed to the crew that the ship was, in fact, in a much more perilous position, enabling evasive action to be taken just in the nick of time to avoid a catastrophe. In due course, in recognition of this significant feat, the master of the ship, Roger Wills, presented Harrison with a certificate outlining these important facts. On June 30th, 1737, the Board of Longitude convened officially for the first time to hear, to hear how H1's trial had gone and to inspect this model of high technology. The news the board received was evidence that, after all, a marine timekeeper might just prove to be the practical solution to the longitude problem. The first workable marine timekeeper. Today, timekeepers are referred to as marine timekeepers, but the term chronometer was not widely accepted until after Harrison's death. The word timekeeper was a very special of special significance. It was only used to describe a portable machine cap capable of high accuracy. Should it be also mentioned that the H abbreviations used today to refer to timekeepers are a relatively recent denomination. First applied by Lieutenant Commander Rupert T. Gould in the 1940s during his restoration work on them. As mentioned, Harrison designed the first marine timekeeper to be conceptually as a portable version of the precision pendulum clocks. And it is important to bear this in mind in one is one is to understand H1 properly. Unlike the pendulum clocks, which run for a week with one winding, all Harrison's timekeepers run for one day only. But H4 has wheelwork of oak with lignum vitae as roller pinions. The mainframe and ancillaries of the timekeeper are all made of brass and other alloys. Were possible avoiding the use of steel which would rust at sea. Instead, Harrison used two types of bronze, a low encapsulated tin bronze where good tensile strength was required and a high tin bronze where high compression strength was also needed. The major difference between H1 and the pendulum clocks is that H1 does not require gravity for any of its operations. An essential prerequisite for a marine timekeeper, but one that many earlier designers, including Huygens and Soli, had overlooked. Thus, the timekeepers are spring-driven, with a fusee to ensure a uniform driving force. The fusee is, however, most unusual in that it employs two chains and two barrels, positioned at 180 degrees to one another, hugely reducing the load of the pivots on the fusee. In spite of its relatively good performance on the Orford, H1 did not perform nearly well enough to win the smallest of the longitude prizes. Even before the trial, Harrison probably knew the design could be improved. It was, after all, very much a prototype, and one of which the Harrisons never even put their signatures on.
wishing to move on, Harrison did not ask for a second official trial of H-1, but requested financial assistance from the board to make an improved version of the timekeeper. Nothing like H-1 had been seen before, and the commissioners were undoubtedly very impressed by both machine and its inventor. They allocated him 250 pounds there and then, with the promise of another 250 pounds upon completion of an improved machine. In agreeing to the support, the commissioners were, in effect, instigating the very first government-sponsored research and development project in the history of the world undertaken by a private contractor. Moved to London. On his visits to London, and especially one when he was introduced to George Graham's circle, Harrison discovered how the city's unique horological facilities and connections were made to make life working easier. Almost anything he needed by the way of horological services or materials could be sourced out in London. There is no doubt either that Graham and his circle would have been able to advise Harrison on written scientific and or horological sources. And we know Graham himself discussed and advised Harrison on some details of his timekeepers, advice that was not always taken kindly. Harrison decided that if he were to discuss in creating a marine timekeeper, he would need the support of the London trade and he moved to the capital, London, in 1736 from the country of Barrow, soon after his return from the Lisbon trials. His first home was in Leather Lane in Holborn, but around 1739 he moved west to Red Lion Square, where he would live for the rest of his life. It seems that James accompanied his brother for the first year or so, but there may have been a breakdown in the partnership as James did not stay that long. By 1738, he was living back in Lincolnshire. Harrison began work on the second timekeeper immediately by January of 1741. He was on the board again. By this time, he had already realized a deficiency in the design of H2, and he began to work on the third timekeeper, H3. Notwithstanding this, H2 is a remarkable of a timekeeper as H1 and has a more professional feel about its construction and finished fit. Harrison told the board in a later interview that he had employed the services of a number of London tradesmen that would certainly have been for the supply materials such as brass plate and steel springs and services such as engraving. In all probability, he also employed workmen for such tasks as basic finishing, although the main design and layout of the movement would have been all his own, the details of which would have been carefully concealed from prying eyes. Larger and heavier than H1, H2 stands 66 centimeters high, weighs over 39 kilograms, and is made almost entirely of solid brass. The only wood in the timekeeper is the lignum vitae parts and the oak pallets of the escapement. The concept is fundamentally the same as H1's, except the temperature compensation is of a more simplified design, and Harrison fitted a remontoir to H2. As with H1, 
H2 would have been originally cased and mounted in large gimbals to ensure it remained horizontal at all times. The mounting itself does not survive, but its form has been recorded on a small pen and ink color wash. Harrison recorded that he noted a deficiency in the linked bar balances when H2 was moved. As in H1, the cross-linking of H2's balances was supported to render themselves insensible to external motions while running. But he discovered that, much to his consternation, that the timekeeper was somewhat affected by movement, owing to centrifugal force acting on the balances. If subjected to circular motion in a horizontal plane, the timekeeper would tend to go slow. If subjected to circular motion in a plane of the side elevation, the timekeeper would tend to gain. And if subjected to circular motion in the plane of the front elevation, the timekeeper would tend to become quite unpredictable, tending to gain and lose. He realized that the reason for this in the first two types of motion was that the balances were in the form of dumbbells. If he had made them in the form of wheels, this problem would have been resolved. There was no room in H2's design to convert it to having wheel balances. So after more than two years of hard work and considerable expense, he was obliged to set H2 aside and start over. Any official trial must have given him the best possible results. He may not be giving another chance, given another chance and could not contemplate having H2 tested once he converted and discovered this fault. Harrison's backers stayed with him, though, and petitioned the board on his behalf for more money to continue with H3. Still highly impressed with his ingenuity, the commissioners duly awarded Harrison another 500 pounds and work continued on the third timekeeper. H3. Unfortunately for Harrison, H3 was to be even more problematic than H2. Within five years, it was running and under test, but from the onset, it was clear that getting this design to keep close time would be extremely difficult, and Harrison was obliged to make constant changes to it. Years went by, and although many improvements were made, Harrison just could not get the timekeeper to perform to prize-winning accuracy. Even after an astonishing 19 years of painstaking labor, H3 was stubbornly refusing to keep time well at all. And although he learned a great deal from his Herculean endeavor, its ultimate role was solely to convince him that the solution lay in another design altogether. So, after his initial success with H1, the 1740s and early 1750s must, must have improved something as a midlife crisis for Harrison. However, none of this was known to the Board of Longitude, who continued to support him with grants until 1760, awarding him with more than £3,000 over that time period. His supporters and other members of the scientific community were also unaware of the great difficulties Harrison faced and were still pinning their hopes on his H3 success. Indeed, aware of the much wider implication for science and what Harrison was attempting, and even though H3 had still not proved to be a breakthrough. In 1749, 
the Royal Society awarded Harrison the highest honor in the world, the Gold Copley Medal for his research work. H3 itself, which was supported to be Harrison's magnum opus, must have been the greatest technical disappointment of his life. In later years, he could only refer to it whirly and curious as his third machine. And his perplexed notes on this machine represent the only example on record of the great man admitting to failure. Nevertheless, H3 is an extraordinary mechanism and contains inventions that would prove exceedingly important in the history of technology. The balances are wheels instead of dumbbells and are arranged one above the other. They are still linked together with cross wires and beat seconds are driven by the grasshopper escapement as with earlier machines. For his artificial gravity, instead of helical springs, Harrison fitted one short spiral spring, which controls the upper balance only. A 30-second remontoire was fitted to provide uniform power supply, and the machine runs without lubrication as with previous timekeepers. H3, like H2, was mounted in a glazed brass case. Other works by Harrison. We know very little about Harrison's other activities during his life in London. Everything seems to have revolved around his work on the timekeepers, and it seems highly unlikely that he or his wife Elizabeth had much time for socializing at any stage of their lives. We do know Harrison's interest in music remains strong as ever, and that he continued to revise on the tuning of musical instruments and bells. He also occasionally took on private horological commissions. For example, in 1755, he designed a new form of anchor escapement on the turret clock at Trinity College in Cambridge. The Breakthrough Among the smaller number of scientists who still believed a marine timekeeper was the possibility, very few had seriously contemplated the idea that something on a scale of a pocket watch as opposed to a large clock, could ever be viable. After all, everyone knew what poor timekeepers' watches were, and even the best could only manage within a minute a day. Watches were not even close contenders for the longitudinal prize. This is not to say there was not an interest in improving the performance of watches. There is evidence that in the 1740s, serious experiments were being made. In 1752, one noted London watchmaker, John Elliot, announced to the Royal Society that following ideas he developed in 1748 using bimetallic technology inspired by John Harrison's well-known work. He had a watch fitted with temperature compensation. However, Elliot stated that before describing it to the Society, he would wait to see whether it had been indeed improved the watch's timekeeping. Nothing was heard of this experiment, and it is reasonable to conclude that the watch did not, after all, perform well. It is known that from at least the 1750s, Harrison was also experimenting with improvements in watches. Although whether he began after hearing of Elliot's work or vice versa, we probably will never know. 
for one who was, at that time, looking for alternative technologies to H3, Harrison may well have prompted to look again at watches anyway. The Jeffreys Watch. What is certain is that about the same time in 1751 or 52, Harrison commissioned a London watchmaker, John Jeffreys, to make him a watch following Harrison's own designs. The watch, which Harrison would have finished and adjusted by himself, was evidently intended for experimental use. It might have been useful for his astronomical observation and clock testing, but was undoubtedly intended for a potential prototype marine timekeeper, depending on how well it performed. The watch was given by metal for temperature compensation, of course, but it had another feature that was more significant for its timekeeping properties. Up until 1750, watchmakers had always made the balance in their watches relatively light and small. So they oscillated with relatively low energy. The reason for this was that an absolute article of faith among professional watchmakers, but if a watch had run down and stopped, when it was wound up again, it must immediately spring to life. For example, it must be self-starting. One can imagine them saying, what's the use of a watch if you have to shake it to get it to get started? The only way they knew to achieve this was to make the balance light and small so that the escapement of the watch could easily push the balance to set the mechanism into motion. Harrison's instincts told him, however, in order for a watch to keep good time, its balance must oscillate and as much stored energy as possible. However, to achieve this meant going completely against the cardinal rule of the watchmaker's book. The balance he designed for the Jeffreys watch was relatively heavy, and he lined the rim with gold, which was somewhat larger than usual and beat faster than normal watches. The watch had a verge escapement, the standard watch escapement of the day, but one that was only redesigned, enabling the balance to run at a much larger amplitude. All this meant that the watch was by no means self-starting and it, if it ran down. The case had to be given a little twist to start it running. With this redesign, Harrison had expected a moderate improvement in timekeeping. But to his amazement, the improvement was great indeed, and he set a new path forward which, for which him to move. After all this time, he had in fact been working on a false assumption. The huge, slow-swinging oscillators of his pendulum clocks are fine if they're fixed in a very solid foundation. But if one wishes to start a timekeeper around, one must has to rethink the technology altogether as the large, slow-beating balances are inherently quite unstable and prone to disturbance. The solution was, after all, in those hopeless little things called watches. But it was vital that the oscillator within them be of high energy type for them to succeed. This apparent simple discovery was one of Harrison's greatest achievements alone. The minutes of the board of the meeting of June 18, 1755, introduced the first hint to the outside world of what Harrison knew 
in, to be his breakthrough moment. He asked for more money to continue H3. Support was duly provided by the board, and Harrison began work immediately over the next four years. He produced a watch which was much bigger, one in which more recent times would be known as H4, arguably the most important watch ever constructed in the history of the world. H4. Not surprisingly, then, in most aspects, the large silver-cased watch that Harrison made next, just 13 centimeters in diameter and weighing 1.45 kilograms, is completely different from the earlier marine timekeepers, though the same logical approach to design, the same construction methods are quite evident. Both externally and to some extent internally, H4 looks like a very large contemporary pocket watch, even to the extent of having pair cases. Technically, however, it is different from the ordinary 18th century watch in a number of significant ways. Apart from being exceptionally finely constructed, the movement's balance is much larger and is of higher frequency of period. Like the Jeffries watch, H4 balance oscillates five times a second and having the same escapement, the oscillations are much larger than in an ordinary watch. Temperature change was compensated in the same way by using a smaller version of H3's bimetallic strip. Unlike the Jeffries watch, H4 contains a miniature H3 type rematoire. Uh, rewinding and unwinding eight times a minute to ensure a consistent drive of the escapement. Also, Harrison was unable to miniaturize these anti-friction devices, and H4 required oil on all its bearing surfaces. Jeweled bearings were fitted in many places to reduce friction to a minimum. The use of jeweled bearings was not Harrison's invention. They have been used by London watchmakers since the beginning of the century. But the extent to which he used them is unprecedented, as was his use of diamond in the specialty-shaped pallets of the escapement. Harrison records that during his H4's construction, he had great difficulty forming and smoothing curves he needed using diamond pallets for its hardness. But he did indeed succeed, and even today, in spite of close magnification study, we are still uncertain how he performed this miracle. Rewards and Trials Harrison made great progress with H4, but he was now not only one closing to becoming solving the longitude problem, as the next meeting of the Board of Longitude in March, 17. 56. The commissioners were told of some lunar tables recently completed by Tamias Mayer of Gottingham University, which had been produced in parallel with the work of the Royal Observatory. Furthermore, the invention of the reflecting quadrant, the octant, by John Hadley in 1731, simultaneously with the Godfrey of Philadelphia made interesting measurements the altitude of stars of the sea much easier and provided the sort of results 
that could be used in conjunction with the new tables. And then the astronomer royal himself, James Bradley, recommended that the board consider the potential of lunar distance method for solving the longitude problem as it was now a sufficiently accurate method and was becoming a viable alternative to timekeepers. Board meeting. At the board meeting on July 18, 1760, Harrison asked for a trial for H3, hoping that it would be possible to send the watch, H4 as well, as it had far exceeded his expectations. He said he needed more than one winter to test its temperature compensation, and this was allowed. In March 1761, 250 pounds was allocated to John's son, William Harrison, so he could prepare for a trial voyage to Jamaica to be in charge of the timekeepers. After innumerable delays, on November 18, 1761, the Deptford sailed for the West Indies with William and H4 in the event H3 was not sent to them. The watch had been set to the exact time at Portsmouth, by careful observation of the sun at noon. As chance would have it, the crew's supply of beer had become tainted en route, and the ship urgently needed to put in at the Madeira for provisions. Using H4, William was able to predict correctly that, at the time, they were nearly 100 miles closer to land than the navigating officer had judged. An achievement happily noted by the entire crew. Indeed, the captain, Captain Dudley Diggs, was so impressed that he asked to purchase the next example of such a timekeeper that Harrison may make. The voyage on to Jamaica was equally as successful for H4. We improved to the ship's company that their longitude was well over 100 miles difference from their reckoning. They arrived at Jamaica on January 19, 1762, after asserting exact local time at Port Royal by equal altitudes. It was evident that the watch had done extremely well, though exactly how well would not be determined after careful calculations upon returning home. The passage back to England could not have been more difficult from the placid outward voyage. With few ships available at the time, William had been obliged to accept a cabin on a small sloop of war, the Merlin, and the weather throughout the voyage was tempestuous, to say the least. At times, William had to cradle H4 in blankets to protect it from buffeting and seawater. He insisted, however, on keeping it going, lest it should be thought too fragile and stand used to sea. On arrival at Portsmouth, its error, according to William's reckoning, was only one minute and 54 seconds off the total period of 147 days. Calculations on the watch's performance during the official trial then showed it to have been in error by just 5.1 seconds during the entire voyage out. Needless to say, the Harrisons were very pleased. It was a remarkable achievement, but alas, it was spoiled by one crucial oversight. There had been a failure to officially discuss and agree on the rate of the watch. 
even very accurate, reliable timekeepers do not usually keep exact time. It is extremely difficult to adjust a clock or watch so it does not gain or lose anything. As long as the amount is regular and predictable, this really does not matter. If, for example, it gains five seconds a day, then one simply makes that much allowance every day and correct time can be deducted. However, for trials, this concept was entirely new. Since the Harrisons had not officially declared H4's rate before leaving port, there was absolutely no way for board members to know what it was. Indeed, as accurate as William claimed it was, the trial was therefore next to useless. Predictably, the board of longitude were not convinced by William's figures. At their meeting in June 1762, they announced that they were dissatisfied with the trial on a number of counts, but not surprisingly, top of the agenda was the agenda of applying a rate. In fairness to the Harrisons, it is clear the whole trial had been badly organized from the outset, and the board were equally culpable in the uncertain results. They did, however, agree to award 2,500 pounds of which 1,000 was only to be paid after another successful trial, terms to which the Harrisons reluctantly agreed. From this point, the altitude of the board began to harden toward the Harrisons. The reason for this is the complex, and not all the motives are entirely clear today. But one element which certainly did not help was that as the years went by, Harrison's old influential friends were dying. For example, George Graham and Bradley, and he was losing his establishment support. Another problem was the definite prejudice of the board against timekeepers as a solution. Many years later, one of the commissioners claimed that the board had never expected a timekeeper to equally qualify for any award at all. Even as late as 1762, Neville Masculine, Astronomer Royale, and member of the board still asserted that lunar distances were more trustworthy for fixing longitudes, and it was only in the 1820s that the Royal Navy appeared to accept the chronometer as the best means for longitude determination. For many commissioners, the seeds of doubt must have been sown during the previous 19 years during which, in retrospect, Harrison surely appeared to be floundering with H3. Now, as the contender suddenly appeared to be a watch and looking much like an ordinary one, they were even less inclined to believe it, that it could be successful. As quoted earlier, in 1763, Harrison himself complained bitterly about people claiming watches were just watches and could never succeed. Consideration of character should also not be underestimated. We know from his writings that Harrison had officially expressed himself. From one point of view, this is hardly surprising. Many of the concepts of the devices he was trying to describe had no names at that point, and he was constantly having to invent a new technological language for the board to understand. This Taken in combination with his humble origins, his lack of formal education, 
and his probable lack of social graces must have stood Harrison in poor stead before a group as elite as the Board of Longitude, especially as very large sums of money were at stake. After all, the Board had a huge responsibility. They were answerable to Parliament and the nation and posterity, which judged them harshly if they disputed of such a vast amount of money without absolute proof that the winning method would be practical and genuinely solve the problem. Furthermore, the image of William Harrison that has come down to us from contemporary accounts suggests that he was not his father's best ally before the board. He comes across as a decidingly objectionable character, a nouveau riche socialite of a rather unpleasant kind. It should also be remembered that the board were consistently changing. Hardly any two meetings of the commissioners were made up of the same people. As the years went by, those less supportive of Harrison became the majority. Add to this the emergence of an increasingly perfected lunar tables, a mathematical solution which undoubtedly appealed more to them as theologians and perhaps the diminishing factor accorded the Harrisons is not so difficult to understand. Unfortunately, the hardening attitude of the board was matched by mounting paranoia and suspicion of the Harrison side, evidenced by an increasingly argumentative and sullen attitude before the commissioners. At the meeting of the board on August 1762, Harrison confirmed his agreement to a second trial of H-4 to the West Indies. Remembering the dangers met during the return of the earlier trial, the board also persuaded Harrison of the benefits of a formal disclosure of technical makeup of H-4, to which he tentatively agreed. There must have been a breakdown of communication between the board and Harrison on this matter, however, as it seems the board in intention that details of H-4 should always be widely known for the benefit of the international scientific community. Whereas the Harrisons evidently understood that they were passing it on was absolutely secret for just the British interest only, not the interest of the world. The French. The Board of Longitude, believing a disclosure was now eminent, performed and sent representatives from France that a visit to inspect the timekeeper was in the cards. In April 1763, the celebrated French astronomer Jerome Lelande had visited Harrison and was able to get a look at the external appearance of the watch, but failed to get any details of the interior. Then, in company with the mathematician Charles Etienne Camus, and clockmaker Ferdinand Breton. He duly visited Harrison again in May, but this time the three were only shown the large timekeepers, Harrison stubbornly refusing to let them see the H-4 at all. As a way of keeping the pressure on the board, Harrison petitioned Parliament for a formal clarification of this situation. The clarification took the form as an act of Parliament, which came into force on March 31, 1763. A guarantee that no one else could win the prize with a timekeeper 
until his had properly been tried. The board, however, then augmented this by applying a set of rather severe requirements for the disclosure of the construction of H-4, adding that Harrison should oversee the making of two more watches. This would be tested to be sure that the information had been passed on effectively and to prove that others could satisfactorily make copies of H-4. Harrison refused to accept these extra conditions, and there was an impasse as either party was willing to agree on a compromise. And so the question of the disclosure was shelved while plans were made for H-4's second trip to the West Indies. When the board met on August 4, 1763, to make the necessary arrangements, the first item on the agenda was the dreaded question of deciding H-4's rate. It was finally agreed that Harrison should be allowed to provide his own statement to carry out the necessary observations during the voyage, one being Neville Masculine, an ardent supporter of the lunar distance method of finding longitude, and not surprisingly, soon to be Harrison's vet noir. In August 1763, Masculine was sent out to Barbados to set up the observation station, which, on the arrival of the watch, would enable it to be compared to local time by equal altitudes. Masculine was also charged with making other land-based astronomical observations in order to fix the longitude of the island with greater certainty. On this voyage out, Masculine asked for the opportunity to continue his test on the lunar distance method of determining longitude, which was extremely proud of the accurate results he obtained. Meanwhile, after making his declaration of H4's rate, gaining one second a day in ambient temperature to the Admiralty on March 24, 1764, William Harrison and Thomas Wyatt, a companion, departed with H4 in a ship Tartar from Spithead at Portsmouth on March 28th. As with the earlier trial, William predicted the arrival at Madeira with extraordinary accuracy. Captain Sir John Lindsay presented William with a certificate to the effect that all seemed to be going well until William's arrival at Barbados. No sooner had William stopped ashore than rumors reached his ears that Masculine had been boasting about the success of the lunar distance method he had employed to find longitude on the passage out from England. Understandably, William felt that Masculine was not the man to com compile an unbiased report on the timekeeper, and, after a heated discussion, it was decided to appoint one of the astronomers, Charles Green, to share Masculine's work. In the event, the trial was another astonishing success story for H4. The average computation put the watch error at 39.2 seconds after voyage of 47 days. The trial was three times better than the performance needed to win the 20,000 pound prize. Whatever may have been said and done before, the board should have now recognized that the prize had been won. Sadly, the board saw matters differently. 
remembering the clause in the original Act of Parliament, that the method should be practicable and useful. They were not yet ready to pay anything. First, they raised the old specter of the disclosure they had stated that would pay half of the total £10,000 once Harrison had made a proper exposure of H-4's mechanism, on oath to especially appointed committees. The details would then be published for the benefit of the world at large. Second, the board implied that the watch was a fluke and that others of the same kind should be made and tested. Third, the board then had these requirements sanctioned in an act of parliament, which also included the demand of all four timekeepers should be handed over once the £10,000 had been paid to Harrison. At this stage, the Harrison's relationship with the board was at an all-time low. To fuel the paranoia, the man they were looking to distrust above all others, Neville Masculine, had been appointed Astronomer Royale in 1765, and therefore was an ex-unofficio member of the board. For several weeks, Harrison refused to negotiate at any point of the board's proposal, but the most the mood of the board of longitude was equally militant, realizing that they would get nowhere if he did not compromise. John Harrison finally agreed to sign the oath and disclose the inner workings of the watch. Anticipating this, the board had already arranged a panel of six experts to inspect and watch and witness the explanation. The panel consisted of three well-respected practical watchmakers, Thomas Mudge, William Matthews, and Larkham Candle, the Reverends William Ludlam and John Mitchell, and the London instrument maker John Bird. Larkham Kendall had been apprenticed to John Jeffreys. Moreover, as John Jeffreys had died in 1754, Kendall may have well helped Harrison making some of the parts for H4. The disclosure meeting could scarcely have been a relaxed affair under these circumstances. But to add to the tension, the board appointed Masculine to oversee the presentation. Beginning on Wednesday, August 14, 1765, the panel gathered at Harrison's home in Red Lion Square and watched him dismantle H4. They heard Harrison's answers to the technical questions put to him, as he also provided drawings of the watch for further explanation. On August 22nd, the panel were appropriately satisfied, and each member signed a certificate stating that the disclosure had been complete, though later at least one of them expressed doubts of having learned anything they needed at all. The board met again on October 28th, 1765, and granted Harrison enough money to make up the £10,000, the first half of the full reward. In return, they insisted on the other stipulation, that the timekeepers all be handed over to them after numerable pleas from John, they grudgingly allowed him to hold on to H1, H2, and H3. They insisted on having H4, though, as they intended to ask 
Larkham Kendall to produce a copy of it to reassure them that workable copies could be made. At last, Harrison had half of the prize, but for him it was only the whole reward and recognition that went with it that mattered. Since the failed visit of 1763, the French clockmaker, Ferdinand Breton, had, via a third party, remained in contact with Harrison and now, apparently feeling cheated out of his rightful reward, Harrison agreed to negotiate with the French man for details of H4. He received Breton in London in his home in early 1766, but expecting £4,000 for his disclosure to the French, he sent him away on discovering that Breton had come with only £500. Not to be put off, Breton then approached one of the members of the board's own disclosure panel, the clockmaker, Thomas Mudge. Unfortunately for Harrison, Mudge, a man of great integrity, was happy to oblige the information, believing it to be in the board's best intention that the knowledge was dismantled. Needless to say, the Harrisons were not happy upon discovering what they believed to be a breach of trust, and the board published a sheet of paper on the matter. Fortunately for Harrison, Breton was not sufficiently talented to make a good use of what Mudge had conveyed to him, and the machines he later made in Paris would bear mere similarities to Harrison's work. The whole matter was, to some extent, made irrelevant a year or so later, as in April 1767, the board published the Principles of Mr. Harrison's Timekeeper, and this was translated into French within a few weeks. Although, at the time, this publication was said to have been an insufficient use of those wishing to continue developing marine timekeepers, the evidence today shows that, in fact, it was immensely influential and arguably the most seminal of all publications in the history of the chronometer. The second part of the award. Harrison now knew that, in order to qualify for the second part of the Longitude Prize, he had to produce at least two other watches, similar to H4, and have them tested. He wrote to the board, suggesting two alternatives. He could make the two himself, for which he would need a grant of at least 800 pounds, or he could set up a factory and employ other workmen to make any number of them under his supervision. The latter proposal was contingent on him being paid the 10,000 pounds in advance. Unfortunately, Harrison was no longer in a position of power to bargain with the board. In their reply on April 26 of 1766, the board flatly refused to either proposition, telling him to make the two timekeepers particularly difficult since they had been H4 had been taken from him and that would have been his prototype to copy from, his original. They would decide about the reward only after the two new timekeepers had been tested. Reading between the lines, <clears throat> it seems the board was sending a clear message. In receiving half the reward, they considered Harrison had done well and should not be awarded any more money unless he absolutely met the requirements of the new act. However, knowing 
that he would not give up on the challenge of winning the whole Longitude Prize, they decided to test all four timekeepers at Greenwich. A completely pointless exercise, as Harrison's claim lay in the performance of H4, not the large machines. Nevertheless, on May 25, 1766, without any advance warning, Neville Masculine, the Astronomer Royale, of all the people, turned up at Red Lion Square to collect H1, H2, and H3 from Harrison, with royal orders. To add insult to injury, Masculine arrived in an unsprung cart, the sort of transportation that could do more damage to Harrison's timekeepers than years at sea operating. Harrison was extremely reluctant to advise on how they should be best moved, lest he be implicated if they were damaged in transit. Predictably, one of the timekeepers was dropped, H1. Observatory Trials of H4 In the meantime, H4 began its 10-month trial in the observatory, a trial which it seems was designed to go badly from the onset. This was owing to the fact that H4 had not been cleaned or properly readjusted since its dismantle for the disclosure, which Harrison really should have ensured, and because it did not come entirely with fair treatment while under masculine's care at the observatory, it did not perform at all well. In the end, both parties must share some responsibility for the poor results of the trial. The conclusion of Masculine's published report, however, are not surprising. Mr. Harrison's watch cannot be depended upon to keep the longitude within a degree of the West Indy voyage for six weeks. The fact that Harrison's watch had been dependable on at least one other such voyage was completely obscured by the so-called formal trial. Harrison was incensed, immediately publishing a virulent response. H5. Greatly embittered, but still determined to see the project to its end, Harrison and his son began to make the first timekeeper copy to qualify for the remaining prize money. On April 11, 1767, Harrison approached the board, again requesting the loan of H4 so he could make a copy more accurate from his original prototype. The board flatly refused, saying that Larkham Kendall needed H4 in order to make his copy. They also informed Harrison, to his horror, they had devised a whole new 10-month plan for testing of the watches. In spite of the further setback, Harrison, now in his mid-70s, and his son continued to work for over two years on the fifth timekeeper, today known as H5. Meanwhile, Kendall's progress on the copy of H4 had the adverse effect of persuading the board that all Harrison's difficulties to date had been mere procrastination. Kendall's watch, known today as K1, was completed in 1769 and was inspected in early 1770 by the same panel that had seen H4. William Harrison was also present at the demonstration and admitted the copy was of exceptional quality. Another request to the board that both K1 and H5 be considered for at least two timekeepers for the official trial was turned down. The Harrisons were told 
in no uncertain terms that it was they who must make both timekeepers. By 1772, further finishing and adjusting of H5 has provided only one other timekeeper. The idea that John Harrison himself, now 79, might sit down and make a second watch was clearly absurd. With failing eyesight, father and son had reached the end of the road, (coughs) and desperate measures were needed for further progress if it were to be made. The board were obviously no longer prepared to delegate much more time to the Harrisons as their interest had waned and laid elsewhere. With Masculine's Nautical Almanac being published every year and the navigational instrument, the octant, now available in a much improved form, the sextant, the lunar distance method had become entirely viable. It is, it is thus true to say that the members of the Board of Longitude were quite prejudiced against timekeepers as a viable means of finding longitude. This was from the beginning right to the end. It is not, however, true that members of the board engaged in a vendetta against Harrison, nor that they falsely evidenced in his favor. They were simply doing what they believed to be the right, given their huge responsibility, and they just did not believe timekeepers could ever be a viable solution. Even if Harrison's timekeepers proved themselves useful, they needed to be much less expensive before the Admiralty could ever afford to equip a fleet. K-1 would cost the board 500 pounds. This was the equivalent of about $25,000 of today's money. The price of just one of K-1's watches could buy a complete second-rate ship off the line, armed and ready for sea. Harrison was a very expensive design and thus not considered practicable. Harrison's Salvation King George III Sensing he had almost run out of all options, as a last resort, John decided to appeal to the highest authority in the land, the king himself, who Harrison knew had been following his fortunes with great interest from the beginning. An approach was made to King George III on January 31st, 1772, by letter, via the king's private astronomer at Richmond, Stephen Devonbray. William Harrison requested an opportunity for H5 to be put on trial by the king himself at his private observatory at his castle. William was summoned for an interview at Windsor and asked to expand upon some of the details. At this interview, the king is said to have remarked, These people have been cruelly treated, and then exclaiming, By God, Harrison, I will see you right again. The king was keen to help and agreed to put H5 on trial at Richmond from May to July of that year as a form of an independent test. After a false report, apparently caused by leaving the watch too close to some magnetic lodestones, H5 performed superbly. Its daily rate at vibration over the entire 10-week averaged out at less than a third of a second per day. Both the King and Demonbray were very impressed, and the Harrisons believed that their own personal trial was nearing its end. 
Hoping that the involvement of the king might cause some change of heart in the commissioners, Harrison approached the Board of Longitude on November 28, 1772, citing H5's good behavior and asking for the remaining 10,000 pounds. It was a vain hope. The board replied that only an official trial would suffice and that no regard would be hewn as the result of the trial of them in any other way. Probably at the suggestion of the king himself, Harrison now formally approached the prime minister, Lord North, with the full story. This appeal had the interesting effect of causing the Speaker of the House of Commons to instruct the Board of Longitude to reassess this case in William Harrison's presence, witnessed by two MPs who were Harrison supporters. At this meeting, the commissioners posed a number of specific formal questions to Wayne, who somewhat churishly gave only abrupt answers, most of them in the negative. When finally asked why he refused now to submit just one timekeeper to a trial, he replied, for the following reasons, loss of time, expense attending it, uncertainty of rewards, and I think I can employ my time better elsewhere. The board minutes continue. He then withdrew. What with that, all contact became with the board was nulled. Harrison's petition in Parliament required further redrafting before it could be guaranteed a successful result. Finally, the recommendations of a specially appointed Parliamentary Finance Committee were accepted by the House on June 21, 1773. This, an act of Parliament, entitling King George III on Chapter 77, duly received royal assent in Harrison was awarded 8,750 pounds. This was not the 10,000 pounds for which Harrison was hoping, but if one adds up all the sums he had been given by the board before, including expenses, the final sum totals somewhere over 23,000 pounds, the equivalent of $2.3 million in today's money in 2001. Harrison had, at last, received the great longitude prize money. The interesting question remains as to whether Harrison had actually won the full longitude prize. The members of the Board of Longitude were opposed to the final payment, and it could be argued, undoubtedly, that without their approval, one cannot say the full prize had been won. It might also be argued that, as no doubt Harrison did, with all of the sums excepting the first 10,000 pounds and Parliament's 8,750 pounds, were not reward, but strictly covered his, all of his costs during his entire lifetime. But it was not clear from the board's deliberations what was and what was not considered them as expenses. However, it was agreed by Act of Parliament that Harrison should receive the money that he did, and whether they liked it or not, the money was all paid to him through the Board of Longitude's own bank accounts. So it can be argued that the prize was effectively won. Perhaps more important to John was that the reward was seen to be this, all of his. It still wrangled with him that the members of the board had not approved the granting of, of the money but there was some recognition that John Harrison has solved the longitude problem. <laughs>
Less than three years later, on March 24th, 1776, Harrison died in his house in his workshop on Red Lion Square. It was his 83rd day of his life, 83rd year of his life. In conclusion, in 1772, Kendall Larkham, his copy of H4, K1 was given the most exacting trial imaginable when it was issued to Captain James Cook on his second voyage of discovery to the North Seas. It performed magnificently. From his own log of the voyage, we can read that Cook's steady conversion toward belief in this new timekeeper from being a traditionalist to one who learned to trust the lunar distance method on his first voyage, the second voyage saw Cook gradually won over by the instrument he had faith in now. References such as our trusting friend the watch and our never-failing guide speak volumes from a man of Cook's abilities and experience. K-1 was used by Cook on both his second and third voyages to chart most of the Pacific Islands and northeastern Pacific coastlines, amply demonstrating the reliability of both concept and the hardware. It is not known whether Harrison heard of K-1's success after James Cook's second voyage of discovery, but it is highly likely he would, as an old man, have been informed soon after Cook returned in July of 1777. At least one hopes he heard of this great news. The story of the marine chronometer, as such instruments have become known, does not end here. Following Harrison's proof of such timekeepers was possible, and with some of H4's essential design features published and available to watchmakers, a number of London makers found ways to simplify Harrison's designs over time, while preserving the fundamentals that ensured its great performance. It was not entirely in London that these new designs simplifications took place. The evidence suggests that one important concept, the free or detached escapement central to modern chronometer design, was first thought of by the celebrated French horologist Pierre Leroy. Head to shoulders above the rest, among this next generation of makers was John Arnold, encouraged by Neville Masculine, who presented him with a copy of Harrison's Principles immediately after publication. Arnold was responsible for the majority of design improvements in today's modern marine chronometer. It then only remained for watchmaker Thomas Earnshaw to standardize the form, which enabled the concept to be made quickly, cheaply, and in large numbers, hence over 25 years. Thus, England remained at the forefront of chronometer and precision watch production up to the end of the 19th century. It is not an exaggeration to say (coughs) that without Harrison's pioneering work, Britain's foreign trade would not ever have developed so intensely, and its empire could not have expanded as rapidly as it did if not for Harrison. For nearly two centuries, Britannia did indeed rule the waves, and Harrison in no small measure made this enabling possible. Harrison's Legacy Ever since Harrison's disastrous trials under masculine at sea, the timekeepers remained at Greenwich. They sat virtually untouched till the 1920s. 
They lay in store, dirty, dismantled, and decaying. It was only when Lieutenant Commander Rupert T. Gould, a polymath and a keen amateur horologist, expressed an interest in them and once again enabling them to see the light of day. Gould described their condition. All were dirty, defective, and corroded, and went on to say they were the most accurate timekeepers ever made. The life work of an original genius who was also an Englishman. And here they were, discarded, forgotten, buried. Surely they deserve a better fate. Gould wrote, a definitive, Gould wrote the definitive book on marine timekeepers. Eventually, Gould was allowed to restore all the timekeepers except for H5. A brilliant and remarkable polymath, Gould was fanatical in his interest in Harrison and was one of the 20th century's finest antiquarian horologists. So determined that he was to see Harrison's legacy to its former glory, if not only to talk about the, the life of the Harrisons, but also it caused him to lose nearly everything he held dear. This magnificent obsession with Harrison ultimately contributed to the breakdown of, of Gould's marriage, loss of his home, custody of his children, his closest friends, and even his job. He paid a very high price, and it should be remembered that this is largely thanks to Gould's heroic efforts that Harrison timekeepers were saved from neglect. We all owe him a debt that can never be repaid. It must be also said that after Gould's death, the care of the timekeepers was undertaken by the chronometer section of the English Minister of Defense, who continued Gould's good work and improved one of two of his less elegant repairs. So well was all the work carried out over previous years that today the large timekeepers run constantly, 24-7, without any fear of significant deterioration and almost without breakdown. This is unheard of of any horological mechanisms in museums. All that is required is minimal winding and conservation weekly. Hence, they are all preserved for centuries to come. In 2001, in Harrison's Tercentenary, saw a great recognition of a memorial in Westminster Abbey for Harrison. This finally bore fruit in 2006 with a memorial tablet inlaid in the floor of the nave of Westminster Abbey. Appropriately, this was right on top of the grave of his old friend, George Graham, who lent him the first money to start his endeavor, who was in fact buried against his master horologist, which Graham trained from, in the same tomb, Thomas Tompion. The tablet reads, John Longitude Harrison. The second part of the award. Harrison now knew that in order to qualify for the second part of the Longitude Prize, he had to produce at least two other watches similar to H4 and have them tested. He wrote to the board suggesting two alternatives. He could make the two himself, for which he would need a grant of at least 800 pounds, or he could set up a factory and employ other workmen to make any number of them under his supervision. The latter proposal was contingent on him being paid the 10,000 pounds in advance. Unfortunately, Harrison was no longer in a position of power to bargain with the board. 
In their reply on April 26 of 1766, the board flatly refused to either proposition, telling him to make the two timekeepers particularly difficult since they had been H4 had been taken from him, and that would have been his prototype to copy from, his original. They would decide about the reward only after the two new timekeepers have been tested. Reading between the lines, <clears throat> it seems the board was sending a clear message. In receiving half the reward, they considered Harrison had done well and should not be awarded any more money unless he absolutely met the requirements of the new act. However, knowing that he would not give up on the challenge of winning the whole Longitude Prize, they decided to test all four timekeepers at Greenwich, a completely pointless exercise as Harrison's claim lay in the performance of H4, not the larger machines. Nevertheless, on May 25, 1766, without any advance warning, Neville Masculine, the Astronomer Royale, of all the people turned up at Red Lion Square to collect H1, H2, and H3 from Harrison with royal orders. To add insult to injury, Masculine arrived in an unsprung cart, the sort of transportation that could do more damage to Harrison's timekeepers than years at sea operating. Harrison was extremely reluctant to advise on how they should be best moved, lest he be implicated if they were damaged in transit. Predictably, one of the timekeepers was dropped, H1. Observatory Trials of H4 In the meantime, H4 began its 10-month trial in the observatory, a trial which it seems was designed to go badly from the onset. This was owing to the fact that H4 had not been cleaned or properly readjusted since its dismantle for the disclosure which Harrison really should have ensured, and because it did not come entirely with fair treatment while under Masculine's care at the observatory, it did not perform at all well. In the end, both parties must share some responsibility for the poor results of the trial. The conclusion of Masculine's published report, however, are not surprising. Mr. Harrison's watch cannot be depended upon to keep the longitude within a degree of the West Indie voyage for six weeks. The fact that Harrison's watch had been dependable on at least one other such voyage was completely obscured by the so-called formal trial. Harrison was incensed, immediately publishing a virulent response. H5. Greatly embittered, but still determined to see the project to its end, Harrison and his son began to make the first timekeeper copy to qualify for the remaining prize money. On April 11, 1767, Harrison approached the board, again requesting the loan of H4 so he could make a copy more accurate from his original prototype. The board flatly refused, saying that Larkin Kendall needed H4 in order to make his copy. They also informed Harrison to his horror, they had devised a whole new 10-month plan for testing of the watches. In spite of the further setback, Harrison, now in his mid-70s, and his son continued to work for over two years on the fifth timekeeper, today known as H5, 
Meanwhile, Kendall's progress on the copy of H4 had the adverse effect of persuading the board that all Harrison's difficulties to date had been mere procrastination. Kendall's watch, known today as K1, was completed in 1769 and was inspected in early 1770 by the same panel that had seen H4. William Harrison was also present at the demonstration and admitted the copy was of exceptional quality. Another request to the board that both K1 and H5 be considered for at least two timekeepers for the official trial was turned down. The Harrisons were told in no uncertain terms that it was they who must make both timekeepers. By 1772, further finishing and adjusting of H5 has provided only one other timekeeper. The idea that John Harrison himself, now 79, might sit down and make a second watch was clearly absurd. With failing eyesight, father and son had reached the end of the road, (coughs) and desperate measures were needed for further progress if it were to be made. The board were obviously no longer prepared to delegate much more time to the Harrisons as their interest had waned and laid elsewhere. With Masculine's Nautical Almanac being published every year and the navigational instrument, the octant, now available in a much improved form, the sextant, the lunar distance method had become entirely viable. It is, it is thus true to say that the members of the Board of Longitude were quite prejudiced against timekeepers as a viable means of finding longitude. This was from the beginning right to the end. It is not, however, true that members of the board engaged in a vendetta against Harrison, nor that they falsely evidence in his favor. They were simply doing what they believed to be the right, given their huge responsibility, and they just did not believe timekeepers could ever be a viable solution. Even if Harrison's timekeepers proved themselves useful, they needed to be much less expensive before the Admiralty could ever afford to equip a fleet. K-1 would cost the board 500 pounds. This was the equivalent of about $25,000 of today's money. The price of just one of K-1's watches could buy a complete second-rate ship off the line, armed and ready for sea. Harrison was a very expensive design and thus not considered practicable. Harrison's Salvation King George III Sensing he had almost run out of all options, as a last resort, John decided to appeal to the highest authority in the land, the king himself, who Harrison knew had been following his fortunes with great interest from the beginning. An approach was made to King George III on January 31st, 1772, by letter, via the King's private astronomer at Richmond, Stephen Devonbray. William Harrison requested an opportunity for H5 to be put on trial by the King himself at his private observatory at his castle. William was summoned for an interview at Windsor and asked to expand upon some of the details. At this interview, the king is said to have remarked, These people have been cruelly treated, 
and then exclaiming, By God, Harrison, I will see you right at it. The king was keen to help and agreed to put H5 on trial at Richmond from May to July of that year as a form of an independent test. After a false report, apparently caused by leaving the watch too close to some magnetic lodestones, H5 performed superbly. Its daily rate at vibration over the entire 10-week averaged out at less than a third of a second per day. Both the King and Demonbray were very impressed, and the Harrisons believe that their own personal trial was nearing its end. Hoping that the involvement of the King might cause some change of heart in the commissioners, Harrison approached the Board of Longitude on November 28, 1772 citing H5's good behavior and asking for the remaining 10,000 pounds. It was a vain hope. The board replied that only an official trial would suffice and that no regard would be hewn as the result of the trial of them in any other way. Probably at the suggestion of the king himself, Harrison now formally approached the prime minister, Lord North, with the full story. This appeal had the interesting effect of causing the Speaker of the House of Commons to instruct the Board of Longitude to reassess this case in William Harrison's presence, witnessed by two MPs who were Harrison supporters. At this meeting, the commissioners posed a number of specific, formal questions to William, who somewhat churishly gave only abrupt answers, most of them in the negative. When finally asked why he refused now to submit just one timekeeper to a trial, he replied, for the following reasons, loss of time, expense attending it, uncertainty of rewards, and I think I can employ my time better elsewhere. The board minutes continue. He then withdrew. What with that, all contact became with the board was nulled. Harrison's petition in Parliament required further redrafting before it could be guaranteed a successful result. Finally, the recommendations of a specially appointed Parliamentary Finance Committee were accepted by the House on June 21, 1773. This, an act of Parliament entitling King George III on Chapter 77, duly received Royal Ascent in Harrison was awarded 8,750 pounds. This was not the 10,000 pounds for which Harrison was hoping, but if one adds up all the sums he had been given by the board before, including expenses, the final sum totals somewhere over 23,000 pounds, the equivalent of $2.3 million in today's money in 2001. Harrison had, at last, received the great Longitude Prize money. The interesting question remains as to whether Harrison had actually won the full Longitude Prize. The members of the Board of Longitude were opposed to the final payment, and it could be argued, undoubtedly, that without their approval, one cannot say the full prize had been won. It might also be argued that, as no doubt Harrison did, with all of the sums excepting the first £10,000 and Parliament's £8,750, were not reward, but strictly covered his 
all of his costs during his entire lifetime. But it was not clear from the board's deliberations what was and what was not considered them as expenses. However, it was agreed by Act of Parliament that Harrison should receive the money that he did. And whether they liked it or not, the money was all paid to him through the Board of Longitude's own bank accounts. So it can be argued that the prize was effectively won. Perhaps more important to John was that the reward was seen to be this, all of his. It still wrangled with him that the members of the board had not approved the granting of, of the money. But there was some recognition that John Harrison has solved the longitude problem. Less than three years later, on March 24th, 1776, Harrison died in his house in his workshop on Red Lion Square. It was his 83rd day of his life, 83rd year of his life. In conclusion, in 1772, Kendall Larkham, his copy of H4K1, was given the most exacting trial imaginable when it was issued to Captain James Cook on his second voyage of discovery to the North Seas. It performed magnificently. From his own log of the voyage, we can read that Cook's steady conversion toward belief in this new timekeeper from being a traditionalist to one who learned to trust the lunar distance method on his first voyage, the second voyage saw Cook gradually won over by the instrument he had faith in now. Reference, references such as our trusting friend the watch and our never failing guide speak volumes from a man of Cook's abilities and experience. K-1 was used by Cook on both his second and third voyages to chart most of the Pacific Islands and northeastern Pacific coastlines amply demonstrating the reliability of both concept and the hardware. It is not known whether Harrison heard of K-1's success after James Cook's second voyage of discovery, but it is highly likely he would, as an old man, have been informed soon after Cook returned in July of 1777. At least one hopes he heard of this great news. The story of the marine chronometer, as such instruments have become known, does not end here. Following Harrison's proof of such timekeepers was possible, and with some of H4's essential design features published and available to watchmakers, a number of London makers found ways to simplify Harrison's designs over time, while preserving the fundamentals that ensured its great performance. It was not entirely in London that these new designs simplifications took place. The evidence suggests that one important concept, the free or detached escapement central to modern chronometer design, was thought, first thought of by the celebrated French horologist Pierre Leroy. Head to shoulders above the rest, above the, among this next generation of makers was John Arnold, encouraged by Neville Masculine, who presented him with a copy of Harrison's Principles immediately after publication. Arnold was responsible for the majority of design improvements in today's modern marine chronometer. It then only remained for watchmaker Thomas Earnshaw to standardize the form, which enabled the concept to be made quickly, cheaply, and in large numbers, hence over 25 years. Thus, England remained at the forefront of chronometer 
and precision watch production up to the end of the 19th century. It is not an exaggeration to say that without Harrison's pioneering work, Britain's foreign trade would not ever have developed so intensely. And its empire could not have expanded as rapidly as it did if not for Harrison. For nearly two centuries, Britannia did indeed rule the waves. And Harrison, in no small measure, made this enabling possible. Harrison's Legacy Ever since Harrison's disastrous trials under masculine at sea, the timekeepers remained at Greenwich. They sat virtually untouched till the 1920s. They lay in store, dirty, dismantled, and decaying. It was only when Lieutenant Commander Rupert T. Gould, a polymath and a keen amateur horologist, expressed an interest in them and once again enabling them to see the light of day. Gould described their condition. All were dirty, defective, and corroded and went on to say they were the most accurate timekeepers ever made. The life work of an original genius who was also an Englishman. And here they were, discarded, forgotten, buried. Surely they deserve a better fate. Gould wrote the definitive book on marine timekeepers. Eventually, Gould was allowed to restore all the timekeepers except for H5. A brilliant and remarkable polymath, Gould was fanatical in his interest in Harrison and was one of the 20th century's finest antiquarian horologists. So determined that he was to see Harrison's legacy to its former glory, if not only to talk about the the life of the Harrisons, but also it caused him to lose nearly everything he held dear. This magnificent obsession with Harrison ultimately contributed to the breakdown of, of Gould's marriage, loss of his home, custody of his children, his closest friends, and even his job. He paid a very high price, and it should be remembered that this is largely thanks to Gould's heroic efforts that Harrison timekeepers were saved from neglect. We all owe him a debt that can never be repaid. It must be also said that after Gould's death, the care of the timekeepers was undertaken by the chronometer section of the English Minister of Defense, who continued Gould's good work and improved one of two of his less elegant repairs. So well was all the work carried out over previous years that today the large timekeepers run constantly, 24-7, without any fear of significant deterioration and almost without breakdown. This is unheard of of any horological mechanisms in museums. All that is required is minimal winding and conservation weekly. Hence, they are all preserved for centuries to come. In 2001, in Harrison's tercentenary, saw a great recognition of a memorial in Westminster Abbey for Harrison. This finally bore fruit in 2006 with a memorial tablet inlaid in the floor of the nave of Westminster Abbey. Appropriately, this was right on top of the grave of his old friend, George Graham, who lent him the first money to start his endeavor, who was in fact buried against his master horologist, which Graham trained from, in the same tomb, Thomas Tompion, 
The tablet reads, John Longitude Harrison.